Father, we continue to pray tonight and to ask You to feed Your Word into our hearts. I was thinking, Lord, while we were singing, give us this day our daily bread, and You are my daily bread. Lord, that the bread of life You spoke of is is the Word, yes, but much more than the written Word. It's the living Word. It's You, Jesus. And it's not just Bible knowledge that we crave. It's You. And we pray that every verse, every Scripture, everything we study tonight would just be, Lord, tools that You use to draw us closer to Your own heart. So that we walk out of here, Father, more than Bible students, but disciples of Jesus Christ. Open our eyes to Your heart, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's interesting that Les felt an urging to have us all pray about people who are lost, people who don't know Jesus. Um, That has been very much on my heart this week, and it's very much where we're going, because that's what Jesus is dealing with in Matthew 23. It's people who don't know Him. People who are hardened toward Him. My week began with another long conversation with a friend of mine who's not a Christian. Uh, And it was a tough conversation because the questions that he asks are very good questions. And they're tough questions. And there's some big sticking points that, that he has when it comes to Christianity. And I began to think after our conversation, and there are just some big sticking points for a lot of people when it comes to Christianity. Issues that people have that leave them saying, you know, I just I can't go there. I just can't go there because of this issue or that issue or the other issue. The reality is, whether the person even is intentional about this or recognizes it or not, the reality is at the heart of all of it, of all the questions and all the doubts and all the pushing back against Jesus, is rebellion. Rebellion is there. It's the underlying issue. You know, rebellion isn't always a right-up-in-your-face anger. Rebellion is just as simple as deep in the heart of hearts saying, I just don't want to do that. I want to do what I'm comfortable with. Some of the most loving, compassionate, tender-hearted, sweet people are full of rebellion when it comes to Jesus because they just can't go there. Now, I'm not going to talk about rebellion so much, although that's inherent in the group of people Jesus will deal with tonight. But with rebellion as the underlying issue, one of the biggest issues that fuels that rebellion is the issue of judgment. We just read Matthew 22 last Wednesday night and then again on Sunday looking at the parable of the marriage feast. And if you think about it, the outcome for the first invitees to that feast, Israel, the outcome in verse 7 is that the king was enraged and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Not good. That's serious judgment. If you look at the judgment of the improperly dressed man in verse 13... Bind him hand and foot, throw him out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is a harsh judgment. And very much a reality. People say, you tell me God is love, but how can a loving God judge so harshly? How could a loving God flood the world and kill everybody but eight people? How could a loving God wipe out entire nations? Purposefully, intentionally. How could a loving God send someone to hell? Judgment. I mean, these are tough questions. I believe there are clear answers to every single one of those answers as to how grace and mercy fit hand in glove with justice and with judgment. We talked about this back when we studied the flood in Genesis chapter 6 through 9. And I would encourage you, if you're curious, how could a loving God, a gracious God, flood the world? Go back and listen to those teachings. Genesis 6 through 9. Because we deal with that issue. And we talk about it. And what's amazing is the act of God in, in flooding the world was an act of incredible grace. That I won't explain to you tonight. We talked about in the conquest of Canaan by the people led by Joshua all throughout the book of Joshua 
how they came in and were told to wipe out the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the termites and the flashlights and all the ites you know, that were there in the land. How it was an act of mercy. How does that work, Rick? Go back and listen to the Joshua study. We've talked about the topic of hell. I think primarily in the Revelation series. But in other places as well. How could a loving God create hell, much less send somebody there? And by the way, Jesus is going to talk about that. I'll give you one little interesting point over in Matthew chapter 25. Verse 41, Jesus refers to hell, the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Which is interesting when you talk about why would uh, loving God create hell? He didn't create hell for you. He didn't create hell for me. He didn't create hell for human beings. He created hell, this place of torment for the devil and his angels. Yeah, but Rick, people get sent to hell. I understand that, but it wasn't made for them. You know what is made for us? Believers and non-believers alike, Jesus is preparing a place for us. The non-believer has to become a believer to get there. Has to accept Jesus as the only way. Like trying to get from Whidbey Island to Fidalgo Island, you've got to cross the bridge. And Jesus is that bridge. But all these issues, if you struggle with them, I, I invite you to go back and review some of those teachings, but especially to start from a foundation point. You see, when I approach the Scriptures, because I guess of years of, of knowing the Lord, I approach the Scriptures from a position of grace. I start with a presupposition of love. God flooded the world, but He's a loving God. Okay, then how does that work? If in fact He is love, and John tells us, 1 John chapter 4, several times, God is love. So if God is love, then there's got to be a loving reason why He does some of the things He does. There has to be a loving reason for judgment. I believe you'll see more of that tonight. Some, some will say, well, at least Jesus wasn't so harsh and judgmental as that Hebrew God, as the Old Testament God. Well, the two problems with that are that, first of all, Jesus is that God. That none of those judgments, the flood, the conquest of Canaan, even hell itself, none of those judgments were made without Jesus. So he's part of that. To be completely honest, he was involved with this, but the truth is, Jesus does judge. Now John 3.17 tells us, God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. And that's absolutely true. When Jesus came the first time, it was not to come in judgment. It was to come with salvation. To come with mercy, with hope, with love. Verse 18 of John chapter 3, Jesus said, He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. A little further along, Jesus says in John 5.22, For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. John 5.27, Jesus said, And He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. How does that work? Because He is the Son of Man. Well, because Jesus took the place of man, walked in our shoes, and therefore has every right to judge humanity. Because He's been there. John chapter 5, verse 30. Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just. Listen to why. Because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Well, what does that mean? It means if God is perfect then His judgments are perfect as well. If He's perfect, if He's flawless, then He cannot even judge mistakenly. He can't accidentally condemn somebody. We do. I mean, you've heard all the stories out there. The advocates against the death penalty will say, well, people have gone to the electric chair who were innocent. We've discovered people on death row who, with DNA testing now, were innocent. God doesn't make mistakes. He's very familiar with our DNA. He knows our sin. And He judges perfectly. Jesus says in John 8, verse 16, My judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I and the Father who sent Me. My judgment, says the Son who has the right to judge, comes directly from the Father and is therefore righteous and perfect and absolutely true. So if someone is going to be sent to hell, 
You need to understand that it's right. Hard as that is to hear, it's right. And it's righteous. Now I'm telling you all this because in Matthew 23, Jesus levels a fiery reprimand of the Pharisees and the scribes. He's had arguments with them before. Now he's taken them on before, but nothing like this. The entire chapter... Jesus begins by talking to the people about the scribes and Pharisees with an earshot, and then he turns to the scribes and the Pharisees and he begins to go after them. Literally, to go for the throat. In the most judgmental rant of his entire ministry. And it's righteous, and it's just, and it's legitimate, but it is heavy. Why them? Why the scribes and Pharisees more than anybody else? In fact, the Sadducees aren't even in this, included in this little issue here. Or the Herodians, or some of the other anti-Jesus people of the day. Why the scribes and the Pharisees? Because they were the ones who had the responsibility to teach God's truth to the people. Jesus said in Matthew 5.19, Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And James said in James chapter 3, verse 1, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such you will incur a stricter judgment. And don't think I'm not aware of this. <laughs> as a teacher. If anything, any verse in the Bible scares me. That's it. Because I sit up here with my big mouth every Sunday and every Wednesday teaching all kinds of stuff. You know? Incurring a stricter judgment. Because when it comes to the teaching of God's Word, whether it's the Pharisees or the scribes, the teachers of the law, or Pastor Rick, it's got to be God's Word. It's got to be truth. Unfettered, unmarred, un messed with it's got to be true well let's look at this verse 1 Matthew 23 then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples saying the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses therefore all that they tell you do and observe but do not do according to their deeds for they say things and do not do them the chair of Moses Moses' seat. It indicates the position that the Pharisees and scribes have occupied themselves. They've chosen this place. They want the rule and the authority over Israel. And so they are the recognized authorities and teachers. They're the ones that people go to with the questions. When the scrolls are misunderstood, when the prophets don't make sense, it's the scribes and the Pharisees that are asked. You may even recall Herod called for the leaders, the teachers of the law, to come in and tell them where was the Christ supposed to be born because they were the guys who knew these things. And so they set themselves up in this, in this seat of Moses, calling the people to lawful obedience. And because of this, Jesus says, do what they teach you. You, you need to pay attention when they begin to teach the law and the prophets, when they begin to teach Moses. However, as to their behavior... <laughs> That's another matter. Verse 4. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. There's a massive difference between judgment in the hands of God and judgment in the hands of man. Unlike God, the Pharisees dumped the heavy weight of the law on the people and just let it sit there. Unlike God, they prescribed difficult and exacting laws on the people of Israel, but they did nothing to show the people how to work this out, how to live by these laws, where the freedom truly was in the law. You know, in Psalm 19, it says the law of the Lord is perfect. Well, they would stick with perfect, but when he goes on to say the precepts of the Lord are true and right and refreshing and rejoicing and on and on, well, they didn't show those things. All they did was dump the weight of religion on the people of Israel. They gave no help, no encouragement, just legalistic rules without mercy. Well, doesn't God judge? I mean, wasn't that what He did with the people of Israel? Absolutely, but always with mercy. Now think about this. The children of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. It was punishment. 
It was judgment because when they got to Kadesh Barnea on the edge of the promised land, rather than going faithfully, their faith faltered. And they said, we can't do it. They're too big in there. We can't cross over. And God said, fine. I guess we need a little more time to know who God is. And for 40 years, they wandered. Punishment. However, during that 40 years of punishment, here's the grace part. There was also 40 years of provision. The Lord never left the people. He didn't say, that's it, you're out. Go back and wander in the wilderness. Good luck. Hope you survive. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3 tells us He humbled you, Moses speaking, and He let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, something you'd never seen before. That He might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. He says this, fantastic truth about the 40 years of wandering, your clothing did not wear out. Nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. So along with punishment came provision. Along with the spanking came a hug. I think I've shared it in here before. That's what my father used to do. And it never confused me. It always made sense. The spanking for punishment and then immediately drawing me up onto his lap to hug me until my tears stopped. You see, that's punishment and provision. That's judgment and mercy. And God always offered the two together. The Pharisees did not. They just stuck with judgment. Because if they could keep the people down with these heavy burdens, well, they themselves could float up to the surface and look pretty good, which was their big concern. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 9 says, We had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in His holiness. He's always got that that end for us. A better end. A better place. And if we're going through hard times and the Lord is with us, He always has a better outcome for us. Even when it's hard. The scribes and Pharisees laid down the law without lifting up a finger. Psalm 55.22 Cast your burden upon the Lord and He will sustain you. 1 Peter 5.7 Peter said, cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. He's not going to dump the weight on you. He's going to release the weight from you. Well, the scribes and Pharisees were not representing God. They were representing themselves. Look at verse 5. They do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. What is, what's he talking about here? It was all about the look for the Pharisees. You guys remember that, those of you who were around in the 80s, that uh, commercial for Jordache jeans? Remember that? Jordache has the look that's right. And working, playing, day or night. Come on, you know it. Jordache has the look that's right. Yeah, you're shaking your heads. Okay, well, this was the issue for the Pharisees. This commercial could have been theirs. They had the look. They had the look. It was all about the look for them. Style over substance. And Jesus points this out with two glaring examples. And the funny thing to me is they're standing right there and they can't do a thing about it. He points out what is hanging off their bodies. I'm talking about phylacteries, also called tephilim in the Talmud, and tassels or zitzits. What what does that mean? Well, tephilim, the phylacteries, are talked about in Exodus 13 verse 9, Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 8, and Deuteronomy 11 verse 18. They're not talked about actually, but that's where it comes from. Let me read Deuteronomy 11.18 to you. You shall therefore impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. Now when God says that, and He repeats it in the other two verses I mentioned, He's speaking of the importance of impressing His word into their lives at all times. As the psalmist wrote in Psalm 119.11, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I may not sin against you. And as James wrote, one of my favorite verses, In humility, receive the word implanted which is able to save your soul. Get it in and get it in deep. James 1.21 and 22. 
But rather than getting the word in, which was the intention of God saying you shall bind it on, it has a sign on your hand and his frontals on your forehead, they came up with a little method, phylacteries, tephilim. What they did was the phylacteries were these little cube-shaped leather boxes, about yay big, and they, they would literally strap it onto the front of their foreheads. And they put a little scripture in there, you know, which I tried in high school. We called it osmosis. It didn't work for studying. You know, you go to sleep with a book on your forehead and think, maybe I'll wake up ready for the test. It just doesn't work. But this is what they did. They take the scripture, roll it up, stick it in the leather pouch, and tie it, this little box, on their forehead. <laughs> it looked pretty stupid. How would you like to go around with a little box on your forehead all day? And they would tie that same little box on their left arm. Phylacteries. But worse yet, the Pharisees were making them bigger and bigger. I don't know how big. You know, Big Mac box? Shoebox? I'm not sure how big these things got. But they'd have these big boxes, and you can see them in Israel today among some of the ultra-Orthodox Jews. They will still use the phylactery, the tephilim. Strap it onto the forehead, hanging out there. And Jesus said, they're making them bigger. And all the people had to do was go, yeah. <laughs> can you imagine being one of the Pharisees? You know, what's he talking about here? He also talked about the tassels. The tassels. Now, Jewish men even today have what's called the talit or talitot. The talit is the prayer shawl. Blue and white in its construction, the prayer shawl. And the men would put it up over their heads for prayer. Literally, they would take it and they would close it in over their faces. It's the original prayer closet. (laughs) When they prayed, they just close up so that they could be alone with the Lord. It's not a bad idea, actually. But on the prayer shawl, they began to sew the tassels, the zitzit. The zitzit was actually commanded by the Lord not for the prayer shawl, but for the men's clothing. And even today, again, you can see those tassels hanging out from under the shirts, especially among the Hasidic Jews, the ultra-Orthodox in Israel. They were originally prescribed by the Lord as a reminder to the sons of Israel of the commandments, of the law, to follow Him as opposed to following their own hearts. They were blue, picture of heaven, reminding them of, of the Lord and of holy things. Numbers chapter 15, verse 37 through 40, and you can read about that where God did say, make these tassels, hanging off the, the corners of your clothing, to remind you to keep my commandments and to follow me as opposed to following your hearts. You know what's interesting about these two things? Tephilim, the phylacteries, had to do with the word. And the zitzit, or the tassels, had to do with prayer. The two important issues to the Lord, the word and prayer. And Peter said in Acts chapter 6, verse 4, we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. And had that been the mentality of the Pharisees, the, the, the tephilim and the tassels, that would have been okay. That would have been okay. You know, okay, it's not a bad idea. Another expression of that is the mezuzahs that they put by the door, that they also will put a scripture in, and they, they will touch the mezuzah coming in and out of, a, out of a door. Every door in every hotel in Israel has a mezuzah right beside it, every room. Again, not a bad idea to make you think about, to use as a reminder of the Word and getting the Word into your heart. And had their mentality been about prayer and the ministry of the Word, ministering the Word to the people, this would not have been a problem. But it was about the look. What God meant as reminders to pray and receive His Word, they turned into a showcase of pomp and circumstance. Big boxes on the forehead, huge tassels. They just started getting longer and longer because while they prayed, a lot of times they would, they would hold those tassels, kind of like in Catholicism with the prayer beat idea. And the longer those tassels, man, the more righteous the dude. And Jesus said, you guys got it all wrong. The Pharisees, the scribes, they were seeking the applause of men over the approval of God. That was what mattered to them. They do all their deeds, verse 5, to be noticed by men. Ironside said the only right thing is to live before God and to be, I love this, utterly indifferent to men's praise or blame. Blame me for something, it's going to go right over my head. Praise me for something, it's going to go right off my back. Or I'll duck down, we just let it go right up to where it belongs. Not to pursue the applause of men, but the approval of God. Paul said, Galatians 1.10, If I am still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Which is the issue. That's why we're here. 
Well, verse 6 going on. They loved the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. But do not be called a rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you're all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is, Christ, Mashiach. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. You know, we get such a thrill out of titles in our world. And we really pursue those things. Rabbi, Father, Leader. That word leader there is literally master. It's kind of funny. When we were in Jerusalem the first time, Sharon and I were walking in the old city and we saw something, a little placard, a little tile placard on a wall, blue and white, that said, The Rabbi's Room for Guidance and Counseling. And Cheryl took a close-up picture of it and when we got home, I noticed it stuck on my office door. Rabbi's Room for... And I kind of like it there. I've I got to be honest. To be called rabbi, it'd be kind of cool. Don't do it. But even pastors sometimes. It feels good. I kind of wish you'd just call me Rick, though. Can we make that agreement? Because the Pastor Rick thing, it separates us. Pastor Less. Somehow now Less is floating just a couple inches higher off the floor than the rest of us. He's just less. I'm just Rick. Titles, names, rabbi, father, master. The Pharisees loved it. Rabbi, yes. My child. Father, yes. Son. You know, and Jesus, now this is the third time we've heard him say this. The greatest among you shall be your servant. You know why he has the right to say that? Because that's exactly what he did. He came as the servant. He left everything and became lower than the lowest. A servant even of man. The Creator. So to my mind, He has every right to say what He says. Well, should we then not have leaders and teachers and fathers in our, in our faith? Is it wrong to call someone pastor or elder or shepherd? Is that wrong? It's not about calling someone that. It's about desiring it for yourself. It's about pursuing the title in your life. There's one title Jesus calls us all to pursue. Servant. And I love it when you, when you ask people to, you know, raise your hand if you want to join a team of servants. You know, the tendency is, well, that doesn't sound like they're going to make me move chairs. That's what it's going to be. <laughs> Romans chapter 12, verse 10, Paul said, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. In other words, give preference to someone above and over yourself. Philippians 2 verse 3, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Jesus came as the suffering servant, which is why He alone has the right to bear the title Father, Master, Rabbi. Because He came to serve. By the way, I I think there's something of the Trinity in here. Father, Father God, Master, who Jesus says, Mashiach, that would be Christ, Teacher, the Holy Spirit. So, those titles already being taken, let's just be servants. Now, the intensity mounts. Because Jesus faces off directly toward the scribes and Pharisees and He personally will deliver now eight woes to them. Verse 13, woe number one. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. You yourself, you you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe number one, authority without admission. Authority without admission. They had all the power, all the authority, all the leadership and rule over the people, but they would not admit people into the kingdom of heaven. They stood, as it were, at the door and barred the way. They held fast to their role of little rulers. But they wouldn't let anybody come in. And they wouldn't even go in themselves. How, how did they deny entrance to the people? They denied the entrance to the kingdom of heaven because the Pharisees and the scribes rejected the only way to heaven, 
Jesus Christ. In fact, they, during Jesus' ministry, were trying to lure people away from Jesus. Saying that He was demon-possessed, that he has, he, has, he has the spirit of Beelzebub. That's how He casts out demons. That's where His power comes from. They were trying every step of the way to undermine Jesus, who, he, who said Himself, John 14.6, I am the way. And the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father but through Me. Let me ask you, do we ever hinder people from entering the kingdom? This friend I mentioned before that I was talking to on Monday, the greatest hindrance to his life has been Christians. He grew up going to church and rejects it flatly because of all the Christians that he's seen. Believers in Jesus hindering the way to the kingdom of heaven. Some have trouble with Jesus being the only way, saying, why, are there, why aren't there more than one way? Why can't we have a bunch of ways to God? Why not do it that way? And it's kind of like, as I've said before, it's like standing at the Deception Pass Bridge and going, why do I have to cross this bridge to get over there? Why can't I have another bridge? There's got to be another way. I need a boat. That's what I need. Because I am tired of crossing this bridge every time i got to go to Anacortes. It just doesn't make sense. What do you mean, why is there only one way? Praise God, there's a way! Praise God, He opened the door and made a way to cross into where He is. Which is something He didn't have to do, but chose to do. But faced with this question of people saying, why can't there be a bunch of different ways? A lot of Christians start to back off and waffle and water things down and wimp out and say, well, maybe we just need to love and let live. That's what we'll do. We'll be loving people and to our Buddhist and and, and Hindu and Baha'i brethren, we'll just say, that's cool. You know, that's your way to God. That's all right. We'll get in a dialogue and and, and we'll discuss these things. But that's okay. Many different ways. And in so doing, in opening up and even being willing to look at or discuss other ways to the Father, we misdirect people and hinder their entrance into the kingdom. And we are called to stand on truth. I am the way, Jesus said. I am the truth, Jesus said. And I am the life. And that's what we're called to. Okay, we've been given a great authority in Jesus. As followers of Jesus, once you step into that relationship, once you, once you accept Him as your Lord and begin to walk with Him, immediately you have an authority. And that great authority is this. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.18, God reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What is that? Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And so the role is... Point people to Jesus. Don't hinder them from coming to Jesus. What was the role of the of the servants in that parable of the of the wedding feast? What was the servants' role? Do you remember? Matthew twenty two ten. It tells us the slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. We are not to make judgments about who should and who should not receive Jesus. We're just to tell them. Which means the most evil, wicked, jerk-faced person you know needs to hear about Jesus from you. Well, yeah, but if I tell him about Jesus, he might get saved, and then he might be in heaven too. <laughs> exactly. That's the whole idea. Verse 14. Second woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater Condemnation. Well, number two, appeals without action. Pharisees were good at making long-winded appeals to the Father. Big prayer guys, at least verbally, at least out in public where people were watching, but there was no action to back up the prayer. On the surface, they could be seen praying, for example, for widows with great compassion, but behind the scenes, they were ripping them off. 
They should have paid attention to their own scriptures. Isaiah chapter 10 verse 1 says, Woe to those who enact evil statutes and those who constantly record unjust decisions so as to deprive the needy of justice and rob the poor of my people of rights so that widows may be their spoil and that they may plunder the orphans. The Pharisees must have tuned that one out. Well, pray for the weak and the impoverished and the widows. At the same time, while we're ripping off their land and their holdings and their houses. These guys were dastardly. Proverbs 28 verse 9 says, He who turns away his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Which says the prayers of the Pharisees were disgusting to the Lord. They made their pretentious appeals to God, but their actions were completely disconnected from their words. James 2.15 tells us, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet does not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? And that's what the Pharisees were doing. Appeals without action. Verse 15, woe number 3. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. This is... I mean... Jesus is railing on these guys. This is as harsh as it gets. I mean, talk about judgment. Why is he so harsh? Woe number three, they were practicing evangelism without salvation. Evangelism without salvation. They were turning people into Jews, but with no fruit of it. With no salvation to be seen of it. A proselyte, that word proselyte literally means a newcomer or a convert. So someone who accepts the faith that that you're presenting. And there were two kinds of proselytes for the Jewish people. They had two names for it. The proselyte of righteousness, which would be a non-Jewish person who decided they wanted to become fully Jewish and so they would get circumcised and they would keep the entire Mosaic law. They would place place themselves in the same place as the Jewish people and that would be a proselyte of righteousness. There's another one called proselyte of the gate. And the proselyte of the gate was the guy who said, you know, circumcision doesn't really... Can I... Is there another way? (laughs) And in, in addition to that... He lived among the Jews and would keep the Noahic law, but not the whole Mosaic law. It just doesn't apply to me, but I'll keep the law of God to Moses. What's, what's that? Genesis chapter 9. After the flood, God does lay down some very basic statutes for mankind that I believe are still in place for us today. So the man who accepts the law of, Moses, or of Noah, but is not circumcised, but wants to live among the Jews, he's a proselyte of the gate. Jesus now reprimands the Pharisees for making these false conversions that do not save. They do nothing to bring a person closer to God, just to bring a person into religion. We do that when we invite people to church and not to faith. You know, our job as Christians is not to get people to come to the barn. Now, it took me years to to get out from under that one. That I believed growing up, my job was just getting them to church. I was thrilled in my own spirit if I just invited a friend to come to church. And then it was up to them. No. No. Jesus didn't say, go and make church members. Having them fill the pews all around you. What did Jesus say? At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, I'm going to give you the end right now. Spoiler, here it comes. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't end there. And teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. You know what that means? It means an investment. It means you don't say, dude, come with me to church. And when they do, you go, I'm finished. Wow, let's go get someone else. It means you say, I'd like to walk with you for a while. I'm so thrilled that you want to know Jesus. And now that you've accepted Him as Lord and Savior, let's walk together. Let's talk. Let let me help your discipleship. Oh, man, Rick, that's messy because then you've got to find out stuff about their life and and what's going on with them and you've got to make phone calls maybe even meet them for coffee and who's got time for that? The inviting thing to church, that's a whole whole lot easier. Well, then it's evangelism without salvation. 
And we've talked about recently there are hundreds of thousands of people sitting in churches unsaved because they think all they need to do is show up at church. That's what my friend said. He invited me to church and I started coming and I got involved in the social programs and the small groups and it's great. I like it. Did they ever accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Do they even know what it means to be a disciple of Jesus? That is the responsibility of an evangelist. Not getting them in the door. Tell people about Jesus and then be prepared to walk with them in Jesus. Verse 16. We come to the fourth woe. Woe to you, you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, that's nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men. Which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And you say, whoever swears by the altar, that's nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, oh, he's obligated. You blind men. Which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears by both the altar and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by both the temple and by Him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by Him who sits on it. Woe number four is declaration without devotion. Declaration without devotion. What do you mean by that, Rick? The problem here is that the Pharisees were players. They were game players. They spoke their vows, but they left themselves a way out of keeping those vows. They liked to be seen by men. Remember that. They loved the applause of men. So they would make these grandiose vows, and then they would swear by the temple. But later they'd go, my fingers were crossed. I didn't swear by the gold of the temple. So it really doesn't count. You know, I swear by the altar to take care of this widow in her distress. And then later say, no, I, I didn't swear by the offering on the altar. I swore by it so it doesn't really count. It was like children literally crossing their fingers when making a promise. But it doesn't count. Or betting someone, oh, we didn't shake on it. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Declaration, but no devotion, no commitment. Back in Matthew chapter 5, in verse 34, in the Beatitudes, Jesus made this comment. He said, verse 34, I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by earth, for it's the footstool of His feet, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great King. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you can't make one hair white or black. Only your children can do that. Sorry, I added that myself. But let your statement be... Yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. Jesus, back in the Beatitudes, said, don't get all caught up in swearing by stuff as if it's going to make your word better. Just keep your word. Say yes or say no. But whatever you say, just keep your word. Be true to what you say. Don't play games with your promises. Now, tragically... What the Pharisees completely missed in all of this and in what Jesus is saying here, the temple, the temple's greatest reason for existing, gang, was to portray the body of Christ. If you go back and look at Exodus and the prescription of the tabernacle and how specific it is and what God says how it's supposed to be, it's because every single aspect of the tabernacle, including everything in it, pointed to Jesus, portrays and pictures Jesus Christ. The Pharisees didn't see that. They didn't understand that the altar itself was a precursor of the cross that they were about to see Jesus hung on. They missed it. John 2.19, Jesus said, Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And the Jews said, It took 46 years to build this temple. You'll raise it in three days. But He was speaking, John writes, of the temple of His body. You know what the problem is with swearing on godly things? and then begging off your oath later, the real problem is that you empty those godly things of their value. You make them meaningless. I swear by the temple. Now I meant by the gold of the temple, but I didn't say that so it doesn't count. You're emptying the temple of its value. Sunday nights in Abilene, Texas, when I was in college, I think I've shared this before, the churches were full of college students. Because Sunday morning we had to get our sleep. You know, 
Why did they fill the churches on Sunday night? Why, why not just blow it off altogether? Because Sunday night, every church in Abilene, Texas, at least for this particular fellowship, served communion. Me and my friends had to make sure we got our communion in every Sunday. Well, why? Because we'd miss our grace points. We got to get the communion because that's where that gives me grace for one more week till next week when I got to take the communion again. And we were emptying it of its real value. And we take the Lord's Supper every Sunday at the bridge, but we don't take it so that we can rush through it and say, "Okay, good, body and blood of Christ took care of that for this week. What's next?" We pause and reflect and consider the value of Jesus, of His body, of His blood, the temple and the altar that that the Pharisees completely missed. Verse 23. Woe to you, woe number five. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and, and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law. Justice and mercy and faithfulness But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. And I know there had to be some little Jewish guy in the back who laughed at that. Because the picture is hysterical. You know, you're trying to avoid swallowing a bug, but you're shoving a camel down your throat. You know? Jesus says, you guys, are, you're missing, you're, you're straining out a gnat. What does he mean? Listen, the, the tithing of mint, dill, and cumin. These are little cheap herbs. But the Pharisees were so meticulous. Woe number five. Woe number five is particularity without principle. They were so particular about the law. Meticulous in their tithing. They made sure everybody knew, hey, I, I'm giving my 10% now of all the dill that I have in my, in my home. <laughs> That's impressive. I'm not missing every, anything. All the dill and the mint, the little mint leaves, I gave 10% today to the temple. Because I keep the law. And that was their big focus. Again, trying to make everybody think that they were great, scrupulous law keepers when the reality is they were skipping over the big stuff. The higher principles. Mercy, justice, faithfulness. And what does Jesus say? Hey, it's great. It's great that you tithe, that you give 10% of your herbs. But it's vapid and stupid and meaningless if you don't focus on the higher principles too. Do them both. Do them both. Now woes number six and number seven are the same thing. In essence, we're right back to style without substance. Verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee! First clean the inside of the cup and the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, woe number seven, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Two things here that Jesus points out. That once again, it's all about the look for the Pharisees. But this time, rather than focusing on the outward style over substance, Jesus goes right into the heart and says the issue is not that you just wear these big phylacteries or have these big tassels that look like something. The issue is you look like something on the outside, but on the inside you're dead. There's nothing there. You know, even in Israel today, they whitewash tombs. And they do it because oftentimes the tombs will be out in the hillsides and will be in a cave with a rock rolled over in front of it. And they want to make sure that nobody wanders in there by accident and becomes unclean by touching or seeing or being in the presence of death. So they'll whitewash the tomb on the outside and people will see that whitish paint and say, oh, okay, that's, that's a grave. That's a tomb. And you can see that throughout the land. And Jesus makes this amazing comparison to that. He focuses first on the cup and the dish. Hey, the Pharisees were avid dishwashers, these guys. They were all about cleanliness. So they did all the proper cleansings and the appropriate cleanings and purifications of the cup and dish before they ate. To eat with an unclean cup was unthinkable. But worse than that was the uncleanness of dead things. Numbers 19.11 The one who touches the corpse of any person shall be unclean for seven days. 
And in verse 13 of that chapter, Numbers 19, anyone who touches a corpse, the body of a man who has died and does not purify himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from Israel. God placed a serious premium on on the touching of dead things, of having anything to do with dead things. So the Pharisees, they took that without recognizing that that was the state of their hearts. Outside they looked religious, inside their their hearts were unclean and dead and shriveled. David wrote in Psalm 51 verse 6, Behold, you desire truth in the inmost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. David got it. It's about washing out the inside. Tragically, this whole issue of style without substance, J. Vernon McGee wrote 25 years ago, this is a picture of the average church today that is so busy making the outside of the cup and platter clean. They go through all the ceremonies. They want to have the best equipment. They talk so nice and piously on the outside, but inside, listen to this, inside they do not deal with sin. That is an appropriate judgment, my friends, of the church today. We get inside the buildings and we don't deal with sin. And we talk about everything else, the how-tos of life, how to have a better marriage, how to have a better life, how to keep your car running, whatever, you know. Pop psychology, fearful of dealing with the issue of sin. Gang, we are sinners. And we need forgiveness. And without forgiveness, we are bound for hell. And that's the truth. We've got to get away from the death on the inside. We've got to be clean from the inside out. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Woe number 8, verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, hey, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. Let me clarify, the the phrase of the guilt is not there in the original language. So here are the way Jesus said it. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Now this is a tough one. Well, number eight, I just wrote down memorial without modification. Memorial without modification. They were keeping memorials, but they weren't modifying or changing the behavior that brought about the memorial in the first place. What do you mean? Jesus is saying, you Pharisees are great at adorning the tombs of the prophets who were murdered by your fathers. You're great at making monuments to the dead men who God sent to you who were killed by your forebears. And so Jesus says, fill up the measure of your fathers. Is is Jesus saying they're responsible for the sins committed by their fathers? Are they responsible for, for these things? No. It's not what He's saying at all. What He's saying is, you guys are taking up the family business. Fill up the measure of your fathers. You know what that statement is? Go ahead. Do what your fathers did. It's kind of like on the night he was betrayed, looking at Judas and saying, what you must do, do quickly. Go do it. You know your job. You know your betrayal. Do it. Not that Jesus wanted the Pharisees to do what their fathers had done, but he knew, even at that moment, even while he was getting on to them about all these things, you know what was going around in their minds? We're going to kill this guy. We're going to take him out. We've got to find a way to get him away from the people so we can kill him. That's where their hearts were. The Bible's very clear about that. Fill up the measure of your fathers. He's challenging them to do what's already in their hearts to do. Verse 34. Therefore, Jesus says, Behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. 
And some of them you are scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. And truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jesus begins with the very first martyr, Abel. Why is Abel a martyr? Because he was acting righteously before God and his brother hated him for it and so killed him. And Jesus starts there and comes all the way down to the other end of the spectrum with Zechariah, one of the last prophets to be murdered by the leaders in Israel. 2 Chronicles 24 verse 20 says, The Spirit of God came on Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada. Now, I know that Jesus calls him Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. Same guy. When... The book of Chronicles refers to Zechariah as the son of Jehoiada. The phrase son of doesn't necessarily mean immediate father. It just means family line. And so Jehoiada was more likely Zechariah's grandfather. Berechiah was probably then Zechariah's father. But Zechariah stood above the people and said to them, 2 Chronicles 24.20, Thus God has said, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord and do not prosper? Because you've forsaken the Lord. He has also forsaken you. And verse 21 says, So they conspired against him, and at the command of the king, which was King Joash, they stoned him to death in the court of the house of the Lord. That's what Jesus just said. He's reminding them. Remember the story of Zechariah? Was killed right here in the temple? By your fathers? He says, You guys are going to be blood guilty of that. Blood guilty of the blood of Abel. Blood guilty of all the blood shed in Israel. How is that possible? The scribes and Pharisees were going to do the same thing to the apostles and the prophets and everyone God sent to them. They were going to do the same exact thing their fathers did and they're going to start that week with Jesus. The murder will begin just a couple of days from this point. Furthermore, they're going to make a comment. Right before the crucifixion of Jesus, they're going to say in Matthew 27-25, His blood be on us! and on our children, making themselves fully culpable for the murder of Jesus Christ. Now ironically, that's exactly what we need to be saved, His blood on us and on our children. We need His blood. Interesting to note, it was Zechariah who prophesied the following. Zechariah 12, verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, so they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Zechariah also prophesied in Zechariah 13.6, One will say to him, What are these wounds between your hands? And then he will say, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Why would Jesus mention Zechariah? Because Zechariah talked about Jesus. Because Zechariah was one of the great messianic prophets. Jesus says, all these things will come upon this generation. And all these things did. Why? As Jesus comes to the end of his life, does he come on so strong against the Pharisees? Has he just had it? You know, does he just kind of blow a fuse and go, that's it! Blah! That's what I do as a father. When I get pushed to the nth degree, when it just goes too far, and my kids know it, Corey is, is great at this. Corey is great at recognizing when dad is just about to blow a fuse, and he exits the room quietly. <laughs> Hannah, however, not so much. Because she's so much like me. <laughs> Is that the problem with Jesus? Did they just push Him too far? No, it's not the problem at all. The issue with Jesus here, think about this. Paul said in Romans 2.4, Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? And then you would think, well, Jesus isn't being very kind here. How is He going to get these guys to repent? There comes a time when kindness is secondary to saving a life. When every other thing has been tried... I think about the example of a firefighter trying to pull someone out of a blazing house and they don't say, are you comfy? Can I get you a moist towelette? 
No, they drag the person out kicking and screaming and they may scrape them and scuff them and bump them on the door on the way out. But man, they're going to get them out of the house and save the life. That's what's going on with Jesus. He is looking at these hard-hearted Pharisees and He is shouting into these hearts. He is trying at the end of all things to break up this soil. Sometimes it takes a fire to wake up a people. As Jesus will talk about next week in Matthew 24. The tribulation. One of the primary reasons why the tribulation will come upon Israel is God in the end of all things, once again, like Jesus with the Pharisees, is trying to get the people awake. Pay attention to what you're doing. Don't you get it? But understand this one last thing. We began tonight talking about judgment. But as we finish, we need to know that though God is a judge, though Jesus will and does judge, God does not revel in judgment. The eight woes. Eight woes. By the way, I didn't have time to talk about this tonight. Side note, if you want to go back and study this, this would be fascinating to do. How many Beatitudes were there? Remember? Kind of a hint in the question. Eight. Look at the parallel between each beatitude and each woe. It's fascinating. Start with the first beatitude and look at the first woe. Go to the second beatitude, second woe. Third beatitude, third woe. They line up. What the person, the citizen of the kingdom is supposed to look like and why Jesus leveled these woes to the Pharisees, it lines up. It's amazing. So I give that to you to do on your own time. But here's what I want you to hear. There's a word here that speaks volumes about the character of Christ. About God's love and His compassion. And it is the word, woe. I never understood this before. I would read this and see how fiery the language is. And I assumed Jesus is saying, warning! Well, woe doesn't mean warning. It's the Greek word, uai. Uai. And uai, woe, is literally a primary exclamation of grief. Alas, he is saying. Jesus' heart is broken. It's torn up. There's an amazing video, I don't even know if you can get this on YouTube these days or not, but there was a movie made out of the Gospel of Matthew. And the guy who plays Jesus, the way he plays this scene is fascinating to me, and I think it's, it's got to be pretty accurate. He's in the temple, and, and he's, he's pointing at the Pharisees, and he's shouting these things, and by the time he gets down to the end, there are tears running down his face. And he collapses in a heap in the midst of the temple. It doesn't tell us Jesus did that. I know there's some poetic license there, but he collapses in a heap, heart absolutely broken, and he says these words, which I believe Jesus said while weeping. Verse 37. Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What is the heart of God toward those who are rebellious to the unbeliever? Wow. Alas. Grief. Jesus felt the weight of the woes more heavily than any of the scribes or Pharisees ever would. When He was calling these things out to Him, it was from a broken heart. A broken heart to a hard heart. And the pain that He would feel and experience through this is far greater than they in their hard-heartedness could possibly understand. Judgment, gang, does not come without sorrow, but the sorrow of the one who judges is always greater than the one who's judged. I've shared before, the Bible tells us that when the new is come, the old things will not be remembered anymore. I praise God for that. 
all the stupid, foolish things I've done, history, I won't even be able to recall them. And I believe once we're in heaven, somehow God is going to help us to even not remember those people who right now, you know, have rejected Him. Don't forget them right now. Pray for them and remember them always. But then, whoever has not been saved, I think will be lost to our memory, but not to His. And so throughout all of eternity, there will be a lasting sorrow in the heart of our Father. And that is the soul of every man and woman who rejected Him and would not come home. Yet even in His sorrow, with the closing words, Jesus offers words of hope. He doesn't say, you will not see Me unless you say, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. He says, you will not see Me until you say this. Indicating that the time is coming, and I believe soon, when Israel will say, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Father, we say that tonight. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And in the same breath, Jesus, with which we bless your coming, we pray for your patience just long enough for us to see those who we know get saved. I pray, Father, would you raise the level of intensity even to the point of putting a burden on our hearts for friends and family members who don't know Jesus Raise that level of intensity, Lord, so that we don't just go to them and speak the name, that we don't just invite them to church once or twice, but we commit ourselves to making disciples, fully devoted followers of You, Lord Jesus, even as we ourselves are being made disciples. Jesus, we thank You for Your love and Your compassion, even seen in pronouncing these judgments. And we pray, Lord, for Your salvation and Your kingdom come. In Jesus' name, Amen. Sunday we probably will launch in Matthew 24, unless I want to spend more time here. But um, once we get to Matthew 24, it was said to me recently that uh, someone said, "I've, I've never heard Matthew 24 taught or really dealt with. But we're going to take some time and deal with it. There's some great, great prophetic truths in here about what's coming, about how to keep our eyes open. It's going to be prophecy update time for the next two chapters, 24 and 25. And we're going to see a lot of what's going on in the world today as well as what Jesus said. After that, Matthew 26, we head on into the plot to kill Jesus, the Garden of Gethsemane, the denials, crucifixion, and the resurrection. So we're close to the end of this book. Keep praying, keep studying, keep telling people about Jesus. God bless you.